A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Also want to say a quick shout out to our sponsors, including Alta Bank Mortgage and Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. I'm pleased to welcome my fellow wrong thinker, Eric Peters from uh, Eric Peters Autos. And Eric, I, ho- I trust you had a great Christmas. I did, and I'm actually still on my feet, notwithstanding that I went over uh, and spent some time with my mid-70s neighbors who had the Rona, uh, and I haven't so much as got the sniffles. Oh, no kidding. Now, how, being in their mid-70s, I have to ask, uh, was, was it a particularly tough bout with uh, coronavirus for them? Well, it was really interesting and also dovetails with what we know as opposed to what we're being told by the press. And that is that, uh, for the most part, people who get this thing who aren't already very sick, in addition to being elderly, uh, generally have some mild to moderate symptoms like people get when they get the flu. And they don't feel so good for a few days. Uh, Maybe they have to stay in bed for a day or two, but then they're fine. And that was the case with my neighbors who, again, are in their mid to late 70s with the caveat that they're farm people. I live in a rural area, and these are hardworking people who get out every day and do hard work and lead a healthy, physically active life. So they don't have COPD, diabetes, and heart disease. And that's why for them this was nothing. And this is the fact about the Wu flu. Um, A couple of months ago, a Harvard doctor wrote about this in Slate, which is a leftist liberal publication, and went through the numbers and pointed out that, look, this this is being grotesquely exaggerated. He didn't use the word grotesque, but he said it's being exaggerated, that for most people this is a mild to moderate illness, if anything, and that the only people who need to be worried about this are people who should already be worried about practically anything because they're already very sick. And the rational response to this is to... to to do things to help the people who are very sick, as in the hospitals and the nursing homes, but to lock down the entire country and to make healthy people walk around as if they're sick and live in fear of of a sickness is itself a very sick thing. Oh, I completely agree. And and I I know that uh, you have recently published a couple of different articles with videos of people who finally reached the point where they're just saying enough. They're, they're declaring exactly. their independence from that uh, mentality of everybody is a disease vector. That's exactly it. I, I think the goodwill has, has been exhausted or is very close to being exhausted, and the people are, are about at the breaking point and having had enough. Uh, there are several videos that have gone viral. One of them is of a restaurant owner in California who used his truck to block in one of these health inspector people who had come to harass him because people were eating outside of his restaurant, apparently, on the public sidewalk. And to make a point, he used his truck to block the guy's vehicle in, saying, well, look, how does it feel to not be able to do your job and to be denied the ability to work and earn a living? Because that's what you're doing to me. And he stood his ground, and half a dozen cops showed up. And, of course, those cops, they're not worried about getting paid. They're not worried about feeding their families and paying their mortgages. So for them, it's no big deal to, um, to, to mouth the piety's about how we're all in this together, whereas this poor guy, like so many millions of Americans, is being destroyed over this. And that's a big deal when you can't feed your family, let alone make your payroll. And it's pushing a lot of people to the breaking point. 
there's another video that's gone viral with millions of views, and almost all of the view, all of the comments that have followed this video have been favorable. And she's confronted by half a dozen people in a store for not wearing the holy rag. And she very calmly and in an articulate manner just says, look, I'm not sick, and I'm tired of being treated as if I were sick. This is psychotic, and it's got to stop. And I think that's it. That's the battle cry of this new war that we're in. I'm not sick, so stop treating me as if I'm sick. I, I think the lesson here for those of us who are paying attention is um, these are people who have reached and, and seen the line in the sand that they've drawn crossed. And what I fear, Eric, is that there are a lot of people who have yet to even consider that there would be a line in the sand, much less have drawn one. Uh, I think that that's absolutely true. And the blowback from this could be horrific. And I, I really hope that somehow steam can be released and more rational considerations can prevail. Because if this keeps doubling down and people continue to be abused, and that's what this is. This is like being in an abusive marriage or an abusive relationship with somebody who will not ease up and, and step back and, and say, you know, I, I get it. I, I, I've overstepped here. I've, I've been a little obnoxious. I'm going to try to modify my behavior, and let's try to get along. Some of these people are unwilling to do that, and I don't know how you can coexist with such people, and that is, that's the alarming thing that we're faced with right now. Well, fear does weird things to people, and you know, one of the weird things that I've observed in the last week is uh, people who are confronted with the reality that uh, Dr. Fauci, in his own words, lied to us at various times yep. because he believed we could not handle the truth, and yet people still will hang on every pronouncement as if, but you know, he's really looking out for our best interests. Sure, it's astonishing, and, and that's not the first time. Uh, you'll recall that, I guess, around March or so, he was uh, publicly saying that masks are worthless medically, that they're theater, that they, they don't do anything to stop the spread. And then he wheels around and says exactly the opposite. So which, and I put it in air quotes, science are we supposed to believe from this guy? <laughs> right. Well, and, you know, look, I'm not looking for a reason to hate on Dr. Fauci, but I'm looking for every possible reason to, to maintain my liberties as an American. And, and in the meantime... Well, you know what? I, I'm beginning to hate on him and all of these people because there is, there is something insufferable about people whose own livelihoods are not affected by this. Fauci is a government worker, and his government check, and it's a nice big government check with nice big government benefits, uh, he's not missing a meal. And most of the people who are the most belligerent about uh, all of this, we're in this together, blah, blah, blah. These are people who are not sacrificing personally. I think it would be very, very interesting if somehow you could make it universally applicable that everybody, everybody, no exceptions, uh, is compelled to stay home, close their businesses, stop earning a living. I wonder how long uh, all of these, these, these pious proclamations about what we need to do to stop the spread would last. No, I'm, I'm with you. So, so talk to me for a minute here about uh, what are the main lessons, the main takeaways that you are, uh, are finding as you look back in retrospect at 2020? We've had a lot to learn this year. What stands out to you? Well, what, what stands out to me is how, how effective fear is, and particularly uh, orchestrated, organized, uh, coordinated fear, and the way it can be used to manipulate people. It's instructive. It shows that it's not just the Germans, and it's not just the Russians, and it's not just those weird, strange people who live in foreign countries who are vulnerable to mass panics, and that America is somehow different. No, America is precisely the same, because human nature is the same. And you terrify people, any people, and you can get them to do practically anything. Uh, the, the, the notorious German Reichsmarschall Hermann Goering, after uh, the war, when he was on trial for his life in Nuremberg, um, 
said exactly that in so many words. Uh, he talked about how you just have to terrify people and tell them to, to object amounts to not being patriotic, not doing your necessary duty, and turn the population against the heretic. And that's the same formula that's being applied now. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that's, that is definitely one of the big lessons, the fear that has motivated people. Anything else, and this doesn't necessarily have to be even limited to, mm-hmm. to, you know, to the Rona, but um, there's been a lot going on this year. Anything else that stands out to you about 2020 that could either, either serve as a cautionary tale or just a lesson well learned? A lesson well learned, I hope, before it's not too late, and it'll be glad, I'll be very glad when it's over, assuming 2021 uh, is better, and that people begin to calm down, and more importantly, begin to get mad at the way they have been uh, just manipulated and pushed and trod upon. It's really sickening what's been done to this country and to the people of this country. Yeah. Well, I, I know that uh, the, the videos, and by the way, I'll have links to both of those videos that you referenced, the woman in the store, mm-hmm. the guy blocking in the health inspector with his car. Mm-hmm. I'll have those in the show notes. But I, I think this is probably as good a time as any for, for anyone within the sound of our voices to consider, where is my personal line in the sand? And I don't know, mm-hmm. do, you, do you have any thoughts on how one goes about uh, sorting oneself out to where you can say with confidence, I know where my line is? Yeah, well, I think uh, the way to look at this, the way I look at it, uh, there was a German clergyman uh, named Niemöller uh, during the Nazi period in Germany, and he had been a decorated U-boat submarine commander uh, during World War I, but he'd become a clergyman after the war. And he wrote famously, and I'm paraphrasing here, that uh, at first uh, I didn't object when they came for the communists because I wasn't a communist. And then they came for the Jews, and I didn't object because I wasn't a Jew. Uh, and then they came for me, and there was no one left to object. And this isn't, this isn't about your personal thing, because everything is, is affected by what happens to others. If anybody's rights are abused, then your rights are not safe. So if your neighbor has had his business closed uh, on account of this, but you're okay because whatever you do for a living hasn't been affected or you've been declared essential, don't feel that you're safe because you're not. You're next. And we do all have to stand in this together against this tyranny and put a stop to it, not just for our own sakes, for everybody's sakes, because it's the same thing. Okay. On that note, we've got to take a quick break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. We will pay a couple of bills and be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Every Tuesday, I get the opportunity to talk with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. If you haven't been to his website, you really should uh, take a trip there. There are links in the show notes, but uh, you should make this a regular part of uh, your weekly and daily reading. Eric, you comment on a lot of different topics, a lot of uh, a lot of things going on, and it's it's been a busy time for for somebody who's freedom minded. I'm sure there is just no shortage mm-hmm. of, of things on which you can comment. I do want to pick your brain momentarily about mm-hmm. uh, the election uh, intrigue <laughs> that is still currently hanging over Washington D.C. Yeah. Anything on your radar screen? 
Yeah, well, uh, I don't know if you've been following this, but there is apparently going to be a uh, a major gathering slash protest on the sixth sixth of January when Congress will affirm uh, the fraudulent election and anoint uh, the hair plug man as the next president of the United States. I might attend this. I haven't decided. I've been talking with a number of my friends about potentially going up there. Uh, and when I say fraud, I use the word purposefully. I do believe, and this is not a partisan thing, I'm, I'm talking now as a journalist who looks at stuff and, and finds out what the straight dope is. And there is a lot of evidence that there was some hinky things going on in a number of the key states. And I think it's appalling that it's not being looked at for both sides. I think if I were on the opposite side, I'd want the legitimacy of my guy to be established firmly so that nobody could claim, hey, that guy's illegitimate and what he's doing is wrong because it is illegitimate. Um, this is bad for everybody on both sides. We're going to end up potentially with a, a country completely divided against uh, itself, as happened in 1861, and that's not good news for either side. No, and that it, I just have this sense, and if it makes me a conspiracy theorist, so be it, but I have a sense that we're being steered there by people yeah. who, who won't actually be participating in the hostilities. They're going to be sitting on a porch somewhere sipping lemonade while the rest of us sure. are fighting in the streets. And, and I have to yeah. wonder if, if, you know, look, the left has shown its, its uh, propensity towards violence. The right, I think, has been very restrained, but I think can only uh, keep that back for so far. Uh, it just seems like we're, we're being herded into a situation or backed into a corner from which there is no peaceful exit. Absolutely. And with a potential end result, which will uh, redound to the benefit of those people that you're talking about, like Gesundheitsführer Newsom, for instance, yep. uh, who ignores his own uh, holy rag decrees and socially socialist distancing dis- decrees to sup with his friends at their fancy restaurant, uh, it will benefit them because that will then become the pretext for uh, additional controls, perpetual lockdowns, the whole nine yards. I really hope it doesn't go that way. And I think the one one possible outcome that could avoid that would be if the court, the Supreme Court, decides to actually look at this and say, wait a minute, let's just revisit it and look at it. And if the media is fair and actually reports what happened, regardless of the results, look, if it turns out that Biden was legitimately elected, I won't like it, but I'll accept it. Sure. Uh, and, I, and I would hope the people on the other side would, would make the same, uh, come to the same uh, kind of uh, point of view, that if, if it turns out that Trump legitimately won the election, then by God, he's got a right to be the president. I would think, though, and Eric, if I'm putting words in your mouth, don't let me, don't let me, uh, you know, uh, do yep. this to you. But um, it probably really doesn't matter as much, you know, to people like you and me who's president so much as it just matters yeah. that government doesn't have its dang boot on the back of our neck. Well, sure, and you know, I'm a libertarian in principle. I, you know, I'd like to have a, a more libertarian society, but uh, at the same time, I'd also like to not live in an ban- outright banana republic. And if what I suspect to be the case is in fact the case that this election was blatantly, blatantly manipulated and stolen, uh, then Biden is allowed to become the president. We literally live in a banana republic, and we might as well just have him come out on the portico wearing one of those ridiculous outfits with you know the epaulets on the shoulders and medals down to his, his, his feet, uh, and he can gesticulate like Mussolini and say, I give you this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. Well, it's, it's going to be a very interesting uh, entrance into 2021. I'm hoping yep. for the best, but at the same time, I'm you know trying to make sure that I've got myself as squared away as possible, just in case you know this yep. this tips off into even more interesting times than we saw this past year. 
No question. And I recommend everybody listening to us uh, take the same precautions for themselves and their families. It's best uh, to, to arrange things so that if it does get bad, you can sort of, sort of pull back and hunker down and maybe try to ride out what might be coming. Well, I'm, I want to shift gears here because uh, there there is some uh, some interesting, and I think uh, for some people, some very good news. Talk to me about the sixteen thousand dollar Jeep. Mm-hmm. What's what's the story? Yeah, it's there? very interesting. Well, there, there's some litigation going on between two companies, Jeep, which is of course owned by Fiat Chrysler Corporation, and an Indian company called Mahindra, which makes a little vehicle called the Roxor, which interestingly enough looks almost exactly like an old Jeep CJ or Jeep Willys, which you'll probably remember from the 60s and 70s and up into the early 80s when they stopped making these things. Mahinder got a license from Jeep to make them just as long as they didn't sell them here in the United States and didn't sell them for on-road use. Well, or excuse me, uh, sell them in the U.S. And, and what Mahinder did was to parse the legalities a little bit and say, well, wait a minute, if we bring it to the United States but sell it as an off-road vehicle only, then we can get around this prohibition, and that's what they did. Uh, and Jeep, of course, sued them because here's the dilemma for Jeep. The Rocksor sells for about 16000 bucks. Now, the least expensive version of the Jeep Wrangler, which is its modern iteration, uh, is nearly $30,000 for the least expensive version. So you can imagine a lot of people who like the idea of a rugged, basic, four-wheel drive off-roader are looking pretty seriously at that Rocksor and looking less seriously at that $30,000 Jeep. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's I, I'm one of those people who's, who looks back at, uh, you know, the way things used to be in terms of cost versus what it costs yep. now to get into any kind of all-wheel drive or four-wheel drive, let alone a pickup. And and it's like, man, you've, you've got to be willing to take out a second mortgage to get into you some of those outfits. Do. Now, this Rocksor is a simple and primitive vehicle, just like CJ's used to be. It has a hose-out hose metal interior. There's no carpet. There's no airbags. Uh, there's not much in the way of electronics. It's got a simple diesel engine. It's got a manual transmission. It's got manual locking hubs. And again, it's a whole lot like the kind of cars that you and I were driving back in high school. And now, you know, you get into a new Wrangler, and it's got the touchscreen. It's got six airbags. It's got climate control, air conditioning. It's got all that stuff, which is really nice if you want it. Problem is, if you don't want it, you're forced to buy it if you want a Wrangler because they all it comes it comes standard. And in the article, I, I point out that while a lot of the cost padding that you uh, have to deal with with new cars is the result of the government imposing all of these regulations that the car companies have to comply with, there's another factor, and that is that the car companies themselves have simply loaded up these vehicles with all of these other amenities and made it so that you're, you're stuck paying this just gigantic sum of money to buy one of these things. And, of course, the only way that most people can do that is to sign up for a six- or seven-year financial indenture, which makes it seem like it's more affordable because you're paying for six or seven years, but it really isn't. Whereas when you're looking at a $16,000 vehicle, most people could afford to finance that in three years, and a lot of people could even afford to you know, cut a check for it potentially. Wow. So is, it, is there going to be opposition, at least on the part of uh, other car manufacturers? That's a pretty low-cost alternative. I think that would be fairly serious competition for uh, you know, some of the existing manufacturers. Well, it is. And Jeep, of course, is sicking all of its lawyers on Rocksor. Rocksor is responding by changing the look somewhat uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of its vehicle so that it doesn't look exactly like a CJ and hoping that that, that allows them to continue to produce it. But I do anticipate that the, uh, the, the, the major car combines, which are a cartel at this point, uh, I wish it weren't so, but it is, 
will gang up and use their power and their 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 lobbying uh, to to just stop to stop any anybody who tries to get on the market with a low cost simple basic car. Uh, it's kind of a to use the word it's a, it's a, it's sort of a private private market. It really isn't private, but you see where I'm trying to get at version of regulatory capture, the economic concept whereby. Uh, these big corporations partner with the government and and get these big these regulations passed that are so expensive to comply with that it keeps potential competitors out of the market. This amounts to the same kind of thing, except it's done by the private companies. Eric, we are up against the clock here, but thank you so much for being my guest. As always, Brian, very much enjoy it. Okay, the website is ericpetersautos.com, or you can go to epautos.com, take a look at his page, frequent his sponsors, Send them some love so they know that uh, his message is reaching your ears. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. Thanks again for joining us. And a special shout-out to my sponsors, including Alta Bank Mortgage and Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Whether you are looking for a uh, home loan, refinance, by the way, you've got a couple days to really get on this. They've got some great incentives at Alta Bank Mortgage. Contact my friend John Staples. Or let's say that you're a business owner and you're trying to make sure that uh, you've got all your commercial business, uh, all your commercial insurance, that is, in line. I guess that can get pretty complicated. Not that this hasn't been a complicated year already, but talk to my friend Steve Burgess at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. To contact my sponsors, go to the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com at the bottom of the page. Nifty little spot there. It says Sponsors. Click on the links. It'll take you right to them, and you can uh, transact business with them, confident that uh, these are some of the best people out there, and they're making this program possible. So you might even want to tell them thanks. So uh, it was great to visit with Eric Peters. I consider him one of the great voices of reason in an otherwise very unreasonable year. One of the other great voices of reason amidst all the chaos has been Jeffrey Tucker. And I have been following him very closely through this year because uh, he has, I think he has been one of the ones who has been willing to do the hard work. And and I'll give you an example of this. When, uh, When the COVID pandemic first broke, Instead of just sitting back and waiting for someone in officialdom to give him, you know, his talking points here, Jeffrey, this is what you should be talking about. Jeffrey Tucker got the book uh, Epidemiology for Dummies. No, I guess there really is such a book. And sat down and paid the price and read and came to understand. Historically, this is what has been done and here's what has worked. And, you know, he was a very powerful resource to be able to access throughout this year because of his willingness to do the fact-checking, to think and and really weigh out what was being told. And I think he has, has been instrumental in catching a lot of the uh, folks in officialdom in uh, official lies and distortions and and their their unwillingness to, to show the slightest degree of humility when they were caught saying or doing something wrong. So I I consider him one of the more trustworthy voices. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to share with you an article from him, Your Trauma and Mine, a retrospective on 2020. I think he, he has distilled some of the very best 
lessons learned during 2020. And this is especially good if you are one of the people who has felt either marginalized or been made to feel like, well, you're out of step because your freedom means more to you than the appearance of perfect compliance. I think you'll appreciate Jeffrey Tucker's take on 2020. He says lockdown shell-shocked him like nothing else in his lifetime. Jeff Tucker says the very notion that governments would push the off button on half the economy, throwing out all concerns for freedom and human rights, was beyond any dystopia I had ever imagined. And he says that's when it was only supposed to last two weeks. But then the weeks stretched into months, and governments that had enacted the lockdowns made the classic error of war generals. They failed to map out an exit path. In time, the rationale for persisting in the unworkable became absurd. Whether infections were up or down, when hospitalizations were up or down, there was no pathway that led out. If the lockdowns worked to suppress the virus, unlocking would surely unleash it again. Even after all this time, there's a dearth of evidence of any verified relationship between lockdowns and reducing severe outcomes of the virus. Tucker says all this destruction of life, liberty, and property, and to what end? It wasn't clear in March, and it's still not clear at the end of the year. It was a wild experiment that never should have taken place, and it has failed miserably. The hubris of the disease planners has been appalling to behold. He says they could not bring themselves to admit failure, so they kept doubling down. No amount of social and economic carnage seemed to shake them. Cancer screenings and vaccinations collapsed. Dentistry services fell 70%. Suicide ideation and drug overdoses soared as predicted. The arts fell apart. 100,000 businesses are dead. Even the murder rate reversed its decades-old declining trajectory and shot up. That's right. When you destroy the basis of civilization, you become uncivilized. He says it was a year in which we were all invited to experience the dismantlement of the good and free society in real time and by force of government power. He says folly is too weak a term. Calamity and catastrophe, those terms are more suitable. And yet it was all caused by the institution that so many for so long claimed was a machinery of compassion, justice, equality, fairness, and high regard for human dignity. In other words, the essential bulwark that keeps civilization afloat. These values were tossed out this year. And he says, and let's eschew the passive voice here and speak more pointedly. Governments tossed them out. The psychological toll this has taken on people's lives is incalculable. Jeffrey Tucker says many people I know are done with lockdowns, fed up with being told one thing and then another, and now fundamentally doubt the wisdom of the health planners, but are at a loss to know what to do about it other than move to Florida or South Dakota. He says other people I know are still believers. Surely this was necessary. Surely there was something achieved with all this sacrifice. Unable to imagine that the officials in charge undertook a nearly nearly a full year of cruelty for no good outcomes, he says they invent themselves, they invent them rather as a mechanism of defense. And then these people turn on others who fail to mask up and stand too close to others, very similar to how the flagellates of the Middle Ages blamed revelry and sin for the plague. So he asks the question. Is there anything of value that can be taken from this experience? And he says, for his part, it's been a year of learning. 
He says, I've read many books on cell biology, the history of infectious disease, and I've thrown myself into understanding the trajectory of 20th century public health policies. Now, many others have been improvising immunology via mass media and Twitter. But he says, I've, I've learned so much, not only about these subjects, but also about human nature. I've learned that people are more willing to put up with despotism than I ever imagined. And I've seen how primal fears can disable rational thought and how political forces can use that fear to increase their power. Jeffrey Tucker says, Above all else, I've come to understand the intellectual interrelationship between economics and public health and how fallacy and policy error spread so easily within both disciplines. He says, It was September and I was involved in a casual conversation with a man whom I would not likely have met had this not been the strangest year of my life the year that our governments decided that all our freedoms and rights can be abolished by edict. That man is Martin Koldorf, a Harvard epidemiologist and public health expert who had decided that enough was enough. He would speak out. Indeed, he would step up, risk everything in order to help end the madness. Our first contact was through Twitter, as one might expect these days. This scientist with training in a wide variety of medical and statistical fields spoke plainly about how and why Lockdowns contradict public health. The core of public health is to consider not only what is good for one group or controlling one pathogen, but to think about all groups and all potential health problems, and not only in the short term, but in the long term. Now, Tucker says he surely did not know this, but his statement is a nearly perfect rendering of the first lesson of economics that I learned from Henry Hazlitt. Economics consists in thinking not only about the good of one group, but all groups. Not only in the short run, but in the long run, too. That's the one lesson that Hazlitt preached his entire life. So this brings him to economics and public health. He says, there we have it, the link between public health and economics. Reflecting on the intellectual errors this year, so many of them have parallels in economics. For instance, an over-reliance on modeling. He says, we've observed the over-reliance on predictive modeling that cannot possibly account for the multiplicity of variables and the heterogeneity of individual human experience, both in terms of biology and also in terms of human action. Just as choice theory and economics must account for subjective value and open-endedness, open-endedness rather, of volition and innovation, so too must epidemiology account for the radical diversity of biological response to a pathogen. Too much formalism in public health creates an illusion of control that is belied by real experience. Central planning works neither in economics nor public health. And there's also the matter of correlation and causation. He says, as with all science, epidemiology this year was tripped up by poor research techniques and the classic error of presuming that correlation somehow mutates into causation even in the presence of a thousand other variables. Now, we're going to come back to this commentary in a few moments. And again, I will have this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you haven't read Jeffrey Tucker's articles throughout this year, go to the AIER.org website. That's the American Institute for Economic Research. And check it out. The archives are there. You'll find plenty of articles. I think he's churned out at least two or three a week um, the whole year long. So there's plenty of reading material, plenty of things you can access to better your understanding. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that Jeffrey's right on every single thing. But I guess I would say he is probably trying harder than anybody I know to truly understand this issue. 
And so he has some points of view that are well worth your time. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I'm sharing an essay from Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research. This has been one of my go-to sources to get a better understanding of not just the medical aspects of the lockdowns, but the economic aspects. And if you really want to understand life, you've got to be willing to dabble in economics. And the writers for AIER, I think, have done a marvelous job of, of covering the various aspects. And by the way, they, they do not march in lockstep. And you'll see some things that will challenge your thinking. But uh, i got to tip my hat to Jeffrey Tucker for his efforts to educate himself on human cell biology, on immunology, and, and uh, you know, pandemics, and how they have been handled in the past. This is uh, his willingness to delve into epidemiology and really, you know, try to get the best understanding he could, I think is, is a great model for the rest of us to follow. And it doesn't make him an expert, but it does make him uh, far better informed than most people who, as he pointed out, have simply resorted to repeating sound bites from Twitter or other social media. I certainly haven't paid that kind of a price. But I'm grateful for those like Jeffrey who have and then have shared what they've learned with us. Among the things he learned is that we have relied too much on modeling and also confused correlation with causation, which, by the way, he says one of his favorite examples among thousands is the restaurant study published by the CDC that found a small overlap of people who tested positive and those who said in a survey that they went to a restaurant, but he says the study even failed to ask if people dined in or out. Moreover, the same study found no relationship between infection and mask wearing, but you had to dig deep within the study to discover this. And he asks, how many ridiculous studies have correlated disease mitigation with mandatory masks and lockdowns only to see those trends reversed in the subsequent months? Bad science has defined our age. There's also been the mix-up of cause and effect. In the late summer, the goal to flatten the curve turned into stop the spread, which took the lockdowners into the murky area of discovering the elusive rate of infection, the R-naught. Why were they doing this? Well, he said it gradually dawned on me that some people imagine if they can drive the rate below one, the virus will burn out. But the problem is, if the infection rate is discoverable in real time at all, it is clearly a statistical rendering of the virus trajectory within a population, not a cause of that trajectory. Trying to control the infection by driving down the r naught he says, is as fallacious as using price controls to suppress inflation. It deals with the symptoms, but not the cause. And it embodies confusion between cause and effect. Then there was the problem of people being fooled by data. He says, we had so much confidence in the spring and summer watching all these rates, all these charts rather, being pumped out by countless trackers. We could watch cases and death rates and hospitalizations, infection rates, spread, new infections, total infections, severe outcomes, stringency indexes, and you name it. It was tragic, but watching it all made us feel informed. 
And as the year went on, we ran into the inevitable. The data was not nearly as decisive as it looks, rather. False positives were vexing the whole PCR testing industry by as much as 90%. Misclassifications made deaths suspicious, and hospitalizations were exaggerated by the media and institutions seeking to make up for lost revenue in the spring and summer. In time, what seemed scientific and clear became highly suspect, even to the point that it was no longer believable. Meanwhile, as incredible as it seems, basic information on the severe outcome risk by demographics is still hard to come by. How many residents of Massachusetts who are still dressing in crazy get-ups and treating fellow citizens as pathogenic disease vectors know that the average age of death attributed in part to COVID is 81, while 98% had additional comorbidities? This is extremely relevant information, but hardly even known by the general public. He says we're in the odd position of knowing less at the end of the year than we thought we knew in the spring. Economics has dealt with this problem for hundreds of years. Having data and having operational knowledge are not the same. And then there's the absence of humility. Hayek said the mark of a good economist is to recognize that authentic social and economic order is a product of action, not design. That means it's essential the economist learns to defer to forces outside political control and even full intellectual understanding. Some things manage themselves better than they can be managed. That's the bitter lesson that economists had to learn in the course of the 20th century. And it is similarly so in the realm of epidemiology and public health. From the onset of this mess, experts imagined they could control the virus via the most blunt instrument, state power. But they only ended up controlling people and ruining lives, but without controlling the virus in its impact on society. Then there's ignorance and passivity. There are two main over, those are the two main overlaps between the two disciplines. There are others, surely, says Jeffrey Tucker, with important implications for methodology, theory, and policy. But he says we're nowhere near discerning and discovering them all. Indeed, it's a major task of both disciplines to learn more about the other, so that economists can dare to learn things about biological science they otherwise might avoid, and public health specialists can gain great sophistication in and appreciation of economic forces. No, economies cannot be shut down with a switch without causing huge, if unintended, consequences. And from March onward, there were too many people in the social sciences, including many economists and far too many libertarian economists, who decided not to speak. Part of the problem traced to intellectual intimidation. I don't know anything about viruses. I believe in economic forces in normal times, but these are not normal times. Probably all my principles should be put on hold until this emergency goes away, same as we might do in wartime. Now, he says, no one wrote those words exactly, but many people thought them. Therefore, from March all the way through summer, there was a strange silence among people who should have been fighting the lockdowns from day one. They knew better and said nothing. Even worse, they invented ridiculous rationales for lockdowns. Now, he says, I'm not going to name names, but they know who they are. And he says, the American Institute for Economic Research worked hard to make up the difference. And there are others out there, too, who deserve congratulations, but there were too few of us. Combined with the media microphone and censorious social media platforms, the lockdowners nearly had the entire field of public opinion formation to themselves. It's a miracle we broke through it all. Still, somehow the word got out, and the anti-lockdown movement started growing. He says it is today more mighty than we know. Still, 
He says, I'm almost certain that had we more allies, things might have turned out differently. The silence was deadly. Jeffrey Tucker says, this has indeed been a year of learning. At the American Institute for Economic Research, we've published four books of our research and writing, in addition to his own book, Liberty or Lockdown. And he says, I'm thinking of working on another collection, but in addition to that, the pandemic and lockdowns have impressed upon us the need for serious and deep research on economics and public health. More broadly, AIER will need to back research and writing on the critical topic of the credibility of science itself. That credibility has taken a giant hit this year, and it will be a very long time before it is restored to regain public trust. He says, every scientist I know worries deeply about this problem. An attempt to save science and help educate journalists ended up being a crucial turning point this year. That was the Great Barrington Declaration. It was signed at the American Institute for Economic Research, but he says the real credit belongs to those scientists who dared to speak up. Their statement was rather plain, a reiteration of the basics of cell biology and public health. Over the coming weeks and months, it was viewed tens of millions of times and signed by three-quarters of a million people. Yes, the science behind the statement is impeccable, despite all the preposterous attempts to smear the document and its authors. But he says the real influence of the document, in his view, was the display of moral courage behind the effort. Now, Jeffrey Tucker concludes by saying the many layers of trauma we've all experienced this year are awesome to contemplate. But he says, if you're reading this, you, like me, are a survivor. We're wounded, but in other ways stronger than before, more dedicated to truth, more committed to the ideals of freedom, less naive and ready to go forth in battle, not to let civilization be dismantled. Rather, he says, we must defend it with everything we have to offer. Why? Well, he says, the good society and the free society are synonymous. Lockdownism under any pretext represents a fundamental attack on everything we are and aspire to be. It cannot and will not happen again, provided we recommit ourselves to our highest ideals. Again, this is the essay, Your Trauma and Mine, a retrospective on 2020 from Jeffrey Tucker, editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. There is a link to this in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. Take the time to sit down and digest this article for yourself. And if it hits the right nerve, I would say, please share it with your friends and get this out there so that others can see that there there are other ways to look at this. There are other vantage points from which to view our situation. I just happen to believe this is a more productive vantage point than whatever the current uh, pronouncements of Dr. Fauci and company happen to be. This is The Brian Hyde Show.